Last week, Pastor John kicked off our series, uh, Philemon, the Gospel of the Upside Down. And we're going to dive into this book verse by verse. It's the third shortest book in the entire Bible, 445 words long. It's, it's really a letter, not so much a book. Um, but just as the images on the screen slowly turned upside down, that is what the gospel does to us. It turns our worldview upside down. The gospel is about the grace and mercy of God in Jesus. And when we accept Jesus and receive that grace and mercy, it does something to us. It changes us. Some of the things that used to seem right are now wrong, and some of the things that used to seem wrong are now right. As Paul wrote in Philippians, things I considered a gain for me, I now consider a loss. And some of those things, uh, he calls some of the things that he used to value, he calls them garbage. The gospel challenges and changes our values. It It makes us do the kind of things like um, giving up our jobs at the sheriff's department or at the hospital and moving to Thailand to do ministry to a people there. That's the kind of stuff the gospel does to us. And so we are going to dive into the letter of Philemon, and I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles to go ahead and open uh, to that book. It's a little hard to find because it's so uh, short. In the Bibles, if you borrowed one of ours, it's page number uh, 967. Uh, in fact, on that page, it does, the letter is so short, it doesn't even take up a whole page. If you're looking for it in your uh, Bible, it's in the New Testament right before uh, the book of Hebrews. Some quick background to the letter is, again, it's from... Paul, the apostle, who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. He wrote at least 13 of them, uh, maybe 14, depending on what you do uh, with Hebrews. Um, He was a prisoner in Rome at the time uh, that he wrote this. He may have only been under house arrest, but regardless, he was a prisoner in Rome. And he writes this letter to Philemon, uh, who lives in a city called Coloss. There was a church there. Um, In fact, Paul writes a letter to them called, in our Bibles, called Colossians. And Philemon is a wealthy follower of Jesus, and he's also a slave owner. And this letter is in regards to Onesimus, who is a runaway slave of Philemon. And we don't know if Onesimus was born into slavery or um, was sold into slavery. We also don't know why he ran away, but he flees 1,200 miles uh, to the city of Rome. And there he bumps into Paul and he becomes a follower of Jesus through him. Just a quick map, just to give an appreciation of his trip here. Um, You have, this is modern day Turkey, here you have Greece, and here you have Italy, okay? Colossus is right there in Turkey, in the modern day Turkey, and he would have gone all the way from Colossus all the way uh, to Rome, 1,200 miles. Um, In addition to being a runaway slave, there's a really good chance that he also stole from Philemon, because how do you make it 1,200 miles? Um, in the ancient world, unless you have some resources. And as a slave, the only resources that Onesimus would have had access to would have been Philemon's. We don't know that, but it's a logical inference. Now, last week, Pastor John went through the first seven verses of the letter to show that Paul is trying to persuade Philemon 
um, about in regards to Onesimus. And in verse 1, Paul places himself beneath Philemon. In verse 2, Paul makes his plea public. In verses 4 to 7, uh, Paul affirms Philemon's partnership and character and influence. He identifies with Philemon in the beginning of the letter. And in this part of the letter we're looking at today, he begins to identify with Onesimus. He has somehow convinced Onesimus to overcome his fear and go back to Philemon to seek forgiveness. And now, in the letter, he is trying to convince Philemon to overcome his pride and grant that forgiveness. And their fellowship in Christ is what's going to help each of them do their part to reconcile, which is the whole point of the letter, to bring reconciliation between a slave owner and a runaway slave, which was going to take a miracle. And this letter demonstrates the power of the gospel. So if you turn to Philemon in your Bibles, uh, we've asked Robert Higgins to read the scripture this morning. So Robert, if you can make your way on up to the podium. As he does, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand and face the center of the room. And we read from the center of the room as a reminder to us where scripture is to be in our lives, both as individuals and as a community of faith, scripture is to be central. And so, uh, Robert, whenever you are ready, please read from the letter to Philemon. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, it as none other than Paul, an old man and now also prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Robert, thank you very much. You may be seated. Now, what's important to know is that uh, in Rome, 30 to 40 percent of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. Um, if that would be true of us today in this room, that would be 130 to 180 of us would be slaves. It was a common accepted practice. Economically, Rome needed slavery to thrive, and slavery was completely sociably acceptable. There was no movement against it. And slaves were considered property, not people. They had no rights. You could treat them however you wanted. Really, the only thing that protected slaves was their economic value. You wanted to treat them well because it was better economics that way. But they had no rights. And the only way that they could ever really become free was if their owner freed them. They were considered property, not people. And runaway slaves faced severe physical punishment or death. So Onesimus, as a runaway slave, he has limited options. He can join a band of other runaway slaves, or he can hide in the underworld of a large city, or maybe he could flee for refuge in some pagan shrine. But when a slave would run away, they would become fugitives, and there were usually rewards posted for finding and returning them. 
And if they got caught, they faced either being scourged or branded or cut or made to wear an iron collar or crucified or thrown to beasts or killed by some other means. And so while slavery was completely legal, completely socially acceptable, as a follower of Jesus, you had a little bit of a problem. Because this socially acceptable practice conflicted with the God of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the second book is called Exodus. And it is about, conveniently enough, the Exodus. And what you have to understand about the Exodus, it is that the Exodus is the foundational event of the Old Testament. What the cross and the resurrection is to the New Testament, the Exodus is to the Old Testament. Um, it was the story for the Hebrew people. And it is a story about God freeing slaves. The foundational story of the entire Old Testament is a story about God freeing slaves. The Egyptians treated the Israelites like property, not people. And God saw what was happening, and God heard their cries, and God acted in mighty ways through the plagues and through parting the Red Sea to free them. And then after they were freed, God limited slavery in Israel. Now what's a little weird is that Again, while there are a lot of things that God does not approve of or does not like, there's lots of things that God doesn't like that he allows. And so while he doesn't eliminate slavery altogether in the Old Testament, he places severe limits on it. And in Paul's teachings on slavery, you see a very similar theme. And you can look these up later in places like Ephesians 6 or Colossians chapters 3 and 4 or 1 Timothy 1. Again, you can look these uh, passages up on your own. But what you'll see in them is that Paul doesn't go after slavery on any kind of, as an institution, either politically or legally. He was a Roman citizen, so he did have some rights, but he didn't really look at it through that lens. As a citizen of the kingdom of God, he takes a different approach. He says, first of all, slaves should obey their masters as they would obey Christ. So if you are a slave and a follower of Jesus, you are to serve your master as if you are following or serving Jesus. And why? Is it because Paul thinks slavery is great? No. He says, in order to win your master over. That's his reasoning. Then he turns around and says, Masters, treat your slaves with respect and fairness. And that would have been very countercultural. Again, they're property, not people. Why do you have to treat them with respect and fairness? And Paul is saying, hey, look, if you are a follower of Jesus and you own slaves and you're not ready to give them up yet, you treat your slaves with respect and fairness. You treat them like people. You do not treat them like property. And then Paul says, 
or Paul basically, he puts slave traders in the same category as adulterers, murderers, and liars. So Paul has a negative view on slavery. But even so, he doesn't promote revolt against it. He doesn't attack the institution. He really doesn't have the political power to end it, but he doesn't really need the political power either because he can transform slavery one household at a time in the power of the gospel. And so going verse by verse, I want to take a look at how he appeals for Onesimus. Starting in verse 8, where you see he doesn't just want to change Philemon's behavior. He doesn't just want to change Philemon's behavior. If you look at verse 8 in your Bibles, where it says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought, in other words, I could use my authority and make you do what you should do, if I'm Onesimus, I'm thinking, why not? Onesimus' life is literally on the line. And so why, Paul, wouldn't you use the full power of your authority to save him? It's literally a matter of life and death. And Paul can save Onesimus with a simple order. However, saving his life isn't Paul's only goal. He wants to bring reconciliation to two enemies. And that, can only, and that can't happen with only a change in behavior. It can only happen with a change of of heart. If Paul orders Philemon to do something, and Philemon only does it because Paul tells him to, then the power of the gospel hasn't been realized, because the gospel changes hearts. Again, parents, when our kids were little, and if you had more than one of them, and they were close enough in age where they could fight, okay, we could, when they were little, order them around. And we could say things, ridiculous things, you know, like, hey, if you don't stop fighting, so help me, I'm stopping the car, and we're pulling over right here. Doesn't matter you're doing 80 miles an hour on the freeway, we're pulling over right here. Or um, if you don't stop it right now, no more video games, or no more phones, or whatever things we tried to bring the hammer down on them. But when our kids become older and adults, we can't make them get along anymore. It's really frustrating. They have to want to have a relationship with each other. And so, as adults, some siblings have good relationships with one another, and others don't. And the parents can only appeal to their hearts for them to get along. Paul doesn't want them, Philemon and Onesimus, to get along because he says so. He wants them to value one another as brothers in Christ. He doesn't just want to change Philemon's behavior. And then in verse 9, you can see that basically his point is that following Christ makes people more human, not less. If you look at verse 9 of the letter in your Bibles, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man 
and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. If Philemon acts um, out of his own heart and not just on Paul's authority, now Philemon has changed. And that's what was key for Paul. He wants reconciliation between the two. He can't make them reconcile. They have to be willing to do it. And so he appeals to them on the basis of love. You see, they both have reasons to view one another as the enemy. Philemon is a slave owner, and so he could be the bad guy. Onesimus is the runaway slave, and so he could be the bad guy. And so now they are enemies, because in the view of one, the other is a bad guy. You know, we do a really good job, without even trying sometimes, of dehumanizing each other. We have lost the ability to disagree without dislike and dehumanizing one another. If we don't like someone, they're the enemy. If someone disagrees with us, they're the enemy. You know, and enemies, they're not like us. And I'm not just talking about our political discourse either, okay? This is everywhere, everywhere. It's in our families, it's with our friends, it's at work, it's at our schools. This attitude has penetrated every part of our society. It is everywhere. We have enemies, they're not like us. And so even some of the things that we say about people, you know, we'll find ourselves calling people thoughtless. They're so thoughtless or heartless or soulless, you know, the soul. Well, if you think about even those relatively innocent terms that we call people, um, if you're thoughtless, well, then you don't have a mind. And if you're heartless, then you don't have a heart. And if you're soulless, then you don't have a soul. And if you don't have a mind and you don't have a heart and you don't have a soul, well, you're really not human then. You're not like us. At least I have a heart. And with that common, everyday, seemingly harmless language, we dehumanize one another. Jesus commanded, love one another. And we can't love one another if we're dehumanizing each other. Now what's ironic in my mind is after everything that I've just, we've just observed in Paul's letter, we see that Jesus in the Gospels issues a command. He commands people to love one another. But just because Jesus commands it doesn't mean we have to do it. You see, Paul didn't want Philemon to act just because of a command. So why would Jesus then command something? Well, Jesus also said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So the reason we obey Jesus' command to love one another isn't because of Jesus' authority, but because we love Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we will do what he commands and we will love one another. So our motivation to follow Jesus' commands is love. And Paul is just following Jesus' model where he says, I appeal to you on the basis of love. It's me, Paul. Come on. We're friends. We're brothers. When we love people, they become more human to us. 
And on top of that, Jesus said, love your enemies. So our enemies, the people we don't like, the people we disagree with, our enemies are human also. And loving them helps us see them that way. And Jesus expects us to treat them in love too. Following Christ makes us see others as more human, not less. In verse 10, Paul appeals for Philemon not to act on his rights. If you look in your Bibles at verse 10 of the letter, where he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Paul calls Onesimus his son. And it was common for rabbis of that time to call their disciples son, and it was common for Paul to call his converts son. And so Onesimus has become a follower of Jesus. And Paul, again, was somehow able to convince him to make the 1,200-mile trip back to Colossus and, um, and go back to his owner, Philemon, and face whatever consequences that could happen, being scourged or branded or crucified or thrown to the beasts or almost anything. And Onesimus actually goes back with the letter. And in it, Paul doesn't defend Onesimus or make excuses for him. He doesn't try to minimize what Onesimus has done. He doesn't say that Onesimus doesn't deserve to be punished. He simply appeals to Philemon. Yes, he's done you wrong. Yes, you have every right to punish him. Don't act on your rights. Act out of love. And as Americans, we're very big on rights. And that's good. That's a good thing. We should defend our rights. We should act on our rights. Sometimes, however, though, as citizens of a different kingdom, we need to give up our rights and act out of love. And that's what Paul is saying here. He appeals for Philemon to not act on his rights. And then in verse 11, we see that even though Onesimus is the bad guy, he is still useful. If you look in verse 11 in your Bibles of the letter, it says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become both useful to you and to me. The name Onesimus, it literally means useful. And it was a common name for a slave. And I would think if I was a slave, I would want that to be my name, useful. But once he ran away, and maybe even stole from Philemon, that name no longer applied. He was now useless. But Paul says he has become useful to both of us. And again, last week, Pastor John pointed out how Paul highlighted Philemon's partnership and character and influence. And even though he was a slave owner, Philemon could, he could be viewed, because he was a slave owner, as a bad guy. But even though he could be viewed as a slave owner, as a bad guy, he still partnered 
with him, pointed out his character, and pointed out his influence. And now he's doing the same thing with Onesimus. He's highlighting Onesimus's value. Even though Onesimus is a runaway slave and could be considered the bad guy, he still points out his value, that he's useful to both of us. Through what lens do you typically view and see people? Do you primarily see their value or do you primarily see their flaws? We live in a culture that goes after people's flaws ruthlessly. Through what lens do you see those who have wronged you? The bad guys. Do you primarily see their value or do you primarily see their flaws? Again, we live in a culture that goes after one another's flaws. Paul, like Jesus, challenges us to see people's value. Even though Onesimus is the bad guy, he is still useful. This isn't just a lesson of something we should do. This is about the power of the gospel. Now, while we don't know how this story ends, there's no record about how, what happens with Onesimus and, and Philemon, in all likelihood, they probably did reconcile. Now, you may say, why would you think that? How would you, what, what's the inference there? Well, the argument is because this letter was preserved. Think about it. Why would you save this letter and put it in your scriptures if the reconciliation didn't happen? It would simply be a record of a failed attempt of the failure of the gospel to transform lives. More likely, the fact that this letter has survived, it survived because the reconciliation did happen, and that reconciliation was legendary. A slave owner and a runaway slave, they reconciled. How in the world did that happen? Well, we've got the letter to show you what happened. It's the power of the gospel. And the gospel means good news. Now, if you still have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5, because there is good news for us. And the good news for us is that Jesus advocates for us even when we act as God's enemies. When we act as God's enemies, Jesus is still advocating for us. As it says in Romans 5, verse 10, for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Even when we were his enemies, he saw us through the lens of value. That's called amazing grace. For those of us who have accepted Jesus, even as followers of Jesus, we sometimes act more like foes of God than friends of God. And when we do that, God still sees us through the lens of value. His mercy never, ever ends. His love for us gives us everlasting hope. 
Jesus advocates for us even when we act like his enemy. The sins of our past and the sins of our present do not disqualify us from a future of hope. They don't. And you don't know why? Because God views us exactly how Paul wanted Philemon to view Onesimus. People worth reconciling with. Even when we're the bad guys. Jesus is always advocating for us. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for that very thing. That no matter how we behave, whether we act like your friends or we act like your foes or your enemies, Lord, that it was for that reason that Jesus died for us so that we can be reconciled to you. Lord, thank you for continuing to see the value in us, even in our dark moments. And Lord, help us to see the value in one another and the value even in our enemies. We thank you for your great love, mercy, and hope that you give us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And receive God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.